Morning. How are you all today? Cold? Is that, is that what I heard? Wonderful. I, uh, before we get to Elijah this morning, I want to invite anyone who wants to know more about Friendship Church or is new or wants to know ways that they can plug in to a lunch next week after this second service. We'll be having a lunch and our Explore class where for an hour we'll just be talking about what Friendship Church is about and sharing some lunch in a socially distanced way. And so I want to invite you to come and be a part of that if that's of interest to you. I get an opportunity to share with you a little more from our Elijah series today. And we've been in this series for a few weeks now. And I really hope that you have picked up on this theme of being single-minded versus being double-minded as we've looked at Elijah. Elijah was single-minded in his devotion to God. What does that mean? That means that God was his priority. God was what he was seeking every day. God was what was his priority in all of his decisions. And there was nothing that was a close second in Elijah's life. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were leading the nation of Israel into more and more double-mindedness. Where they would dabble with worship of God, but their real priorities were found in idols and other pursuits. Now in our passage today, which is going to be 1 Kings 21, if you want to open in your Bibles or turn in your devices, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 21 today. We're going to be focused on King Ahab, a man who was sinful and broken, and we are going to see his sin and brokenness on full display in our passage today. But we are also going to see that because of the mercy of God, there was hope, even for King Ahab. And I can be encouraged by that because that means that there is hope even for someone who is sinful and broken like me. So let's dig in and, and look at this passage in 1 Kings chapter 21 this morning. And it starts when King Ahab has a desire, an idea pop into his head. He wants more vegetables. I don't really get that. Do you? More steak? More bacon? more dessert and ice cream, but more vegetables, right? I, I don't really get that one. That's our, our first sign in the passage that something is really broken inside of Ahab. But believe it or not, a desire for more vegetables is not Ahab's primary issue in the passage. He sees a plot of land that is lush and would be perfect for a brand new vegetable garden. But there's a problem. He, he doesn't own that land. There's a man named Naboth who owns that land. And Ahab goes to this man named Naboth and he asks if he can buy that land from him so he can build his vegetable garden, plant his vegetable garden. Or if he'll trade him a piece of land so that he can have that. And here's Naboth's response to King Ahab's request. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Do you notice how LORD is in all caps there? He says, Yahweh forbid that I give you the land of my forefathers. Doesn't this seem a little dramatic? He could just say, uh, no thank you, uh, that's okay. But instead it's Yahweh forbid that I give you my family land. It's possible that this is more than just Naboth having an emotional expression about passing on land that was his great-grandfather's, his grandfather's, his father's. Yahweh may actually have forbid him from passing on this land. You see, in Numbers chapter 36, 
We're told that an Israelite was never supposed to transfer land from one tribe of Israel to another. It was to stay within the tribes. And all evidence shows that Ahab and Naboth were probably of different tribes. Numbers 36 verse 7 says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Verse 9 says, So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. So when Nahab says, Yahweh forbid, it may be more than just an emotional attachment he has to this land of his dad's. It may be that Yahweh has actually forbid this in the law, this transfer of land from one clan, from one tribe in Israel to another. Now what's King Ahab's response to being told no? It's classic. It's classic Ahab, right? Verse 4, and Ahab went into his house vexed. What a great word. He's vexed, you guys, and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Parents, what's Ahab doing here? Yeah, yeah, he's throwing a tantrum. He's having a pouty fit, isn't he? Absolutely he is. I'm not coming out of my room. I'm not going to eat dinner. Everybody is so mean to me. The world is against me. And he throws himself down on his bed and he curls up into the fetal position towards the wall and he says, I am not coming out. Now, Ahab may be a pouty child, but his wife has a backbone. It may be an evil backbone, but it's a backbone. And so she says this, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed? There we go again, he's vexed, that you eat no food. And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Jezebel says to Ahab, are you the king or what? Are you really going to sit here on your bed and pout and throw tantrums? You're the king of Israel. Get up and take what you want. Or better yet, just stay here and I'll take care of it for you. And so what does Jezebel do? She calls some landowners in this area of Jezreel together. And she has a number of them that are in her pocket that she controls And they call a fast in the land. And as all the landowners of the area of Jezreel gather together, two of them, by Jezebel's command, stand up and accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. Now, did he really do that? No, absolutely not. They're bearing false witness here. But she has enough landowners in her pocket that they all say, yeah, yeah, he did that. Yep, we heard him do it. And so they grab Naboth, they take him outside, and they stone him until he's dead. And we read, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Now now that he's dead, 
Ahab decides, hey, I can get up and do something. There's no obstacles in my way anymore. What we see from Ahab in this passage is the exact opposite of single-minded devotion to God. What do we see from him? We see covetousness. Right? Covetousness is the opposite of single-minded devotion to God. Every person in life is going to determine what they're going to pursue, what they're going to seek with their life. And there is God and there's everything else. And people are going to determine, am I going to use my life, am I going to use this day in order to seek more of God and deeper relationship with him, or is my primary pursuit this day going to be something that's not God? There are people who have a single-minded devotion to God like Elijah, like followers of Jesus, who say, "The, the primary pursuit of my life and my days is more God, and I am content over here with what he has given me. But then there are a whole group of other people who say, I'm content with how much God I've got. I'm not pursuing more over here. Instead, my primary pursuits in my life are for better circumstances and more stuff. That's the pursuit of my days. Better circumstances and and more stuff. That's what I'm seeking. That's covetousness. I'm not content with what God has given me. And instead of making the primary pursuit of my life more God and deeper relationship with him, I'm making the primary pursuit of my life the things of the world. I just want a little bit more. A little bit more of what the world has to offer. That's coveting. This was on display when my kids were in elementary school in the neighborhood where they grew up. Uh, There were a bunch of different kids that were all about their age in elementary school, and all of them had bikes, right? Most of these bikes were purchased at Target or Walmart or the thrift store. But there was a kid across the street who was in third or fourth grade named Trenton. And Trenton kind of portrayed himself as a bit of a tough guy, and he had the coolest bike in the neighborhood, kind of this BMX-style racing bike. His parents had spent a little more on his bike than the rest of us had spent on our kids' bikes. And even though every kid in the neighborhood thought Trenton had the coolest bike, Trenton, every time they'd go out to play, wanted to ride somebody else's bike. Hey, can I, can I ride your bike today? Trenton, even on a couple of occasions, tried to trade bikes with other people in the neighborhood. One time, this, this, yeah, one time we had to put a stop to it because he tried to trade bikes with our daughter. Our daughter's bike was pink and it said girl's world down the bar. And, and somehow that was more appealing to him. He had the coolest bike in the neighborhood, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to pursue a little bit more. And and that's covetousness, and it's been with us really from the beginning of time, hasn't it? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they have perfection. They have everything that God could possibly give to a person. And they have a relationship with God where they can walk with him and talk with him. And God wants them to just pursue more of him. And yet the serpent comes and convinces them that they need what? A little bit more. If you just have a a little bit more, you'll be happier. And so they pursue that little bit more instead of pursuing God. That's 
covetousness. It's the opposite of that single-minded devotion to God that we see in Elijah. And we all have a decision to make today about whether we are going to live lives like Elijah, filled with single-minded devotion in our pursuit of God. Or whether we're going to live lives like King Ahab, filled with covetousness, where we're pursuing things that aren't God as the primary pursuits of our life. Right? C- clearly, God's desire is what choice for us? That we would choose the life of Elijah and single-minded devotion to him. And as his followers, that is our great desire as well. We want to be single-minded, pursuing God, not covetous people. Now, as we move on through 1 Kings 21, we're going to see that not only was King Ahab covetousness, not only covetous, not only was he, he sinful, but God wants Ahab to know that there's judgment and punishment that takes place when our lives pursue things other than God, when our lives are filled with sin. And God tells Elijah he wants him to go and deliver that judgment. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. We see here in Elijah that single-minded people have the courage to deliver hard messages, right? The single-minded will deliver God's message even when it's hard. Elijah is given a challenging message to deliver. It's a message of judgment. And if you remember last week, Ahab and Jezebel want Elijah dead, and so there's some danger involved in bringing this message, and yet Elijah brings it in courage. Why? Because he's single-minded in his devotion, which means what does he care about? He cares about what God thinks, not what people think, or even his own safety. He just cares about what God thinks and wants to be obedient to him. As people who are single-minded in our devotion to Jesus, we have this same call, don't we? We're called to bring a message that isn't always popular to the world. It's a message that God saves us. He saves us from what? From sin. That every one of us are sinful. Is that a popular message in the world today? The world doesn't want to acknowledge sin. Sometimes it wants to celebrate sin. And yet that's the message we bring, that we're sinful and in need of salvation from that sin. That there's punishment for sin. Is that a, is that a popular message today? No, absolutely not. That Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation from our sin and the only way into genuine relationship with God. Is that a popular message today? No, it's not a popular message. But as those who have a single-minded devotion to God, it's the message that we bring, and we bring it with courage. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, says that when we bring that message, we always do it. There's two words here, right? Always do it with what? We always do it with gentleness, that's the first word, and respect, right? 1 Peter 3.15 says, when we bring that message, we always bring it with gentleness and respect, but we always bring it because we are those who are single-minded in our devotion. 
Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, So whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Elijah stood as we want to, as a people of single-minded devotion who care what God thinks about us more than anything else and bring a hard message, even when it is challenging, to those that we're around. Single-minded will deliver God's message even when it's hard. Now Elijah goes to deliver that message. And when Ahab sees him, he says, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. Because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Naboth has taken possession of the vineyard. This is what he wanted. It's a celebration. And just as he thinks he gets to have a party because he's got the vineyard that he always wanted, the man of power and righteousness shows up to spoil it all. Ah, Elijah, why did you have to come here? And he is going to spoil it. Because listen to this message of judgment that Elijah brings to Ahab. Behold, God says, I will bring disaster upon you, Ahab. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin... And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Everyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And every one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. What is going on in this passage? There is a rather graphic description of judgment and punishment that is coming for sin. And the, the punishment and judgment is particularly severe. Why is that? Look at the next set of verses. There was none uh, who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And what we see here from the life of Ahab is a reminder that those who reject God, those who live in sin and run after things that are not God, ultimately will be judged by God and experience punishment. That's what we see here in this passage. There are times in the scripture where God judges and punishes people in this life as a reminder that judgment and punishment are coming to all of those who live in sin one day. We think of situations like Ahab and Jezebel, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Achan, like Acts chapter 5 and what goes on with that couple in that passage. God brings judgment sometimes in this life as a reminder that judgment and punishment are coming to all of those who walk in sin and wickedness one day. And when he judges, he's going to know everything the Bible says. There's nothing that's going to be hidden from him. Ecclesiastes 12 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything will be known at the judgment. It will all be brought forward. And what will happen to those who decide to use their lives to pursue things that aren't God, 
those who, who live in sin, Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There will be judgment from our maker. And sometimes people like Ahab are judged in this life as a reminder that everyone who is in sin will be judged by God. Now what is Ahab going to do with this intense message of sin, judgment, and punishment? He's going to shock us. right? He's going to surprise us here. Because look at his response. And when Ahab heard those words... He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, put, and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. What did Ahab do that kept judgment from coming upon him in his generation? He repented and humbled himself before the Lord. We see traditional physical images related to repentance that Jews would go through here. The tearing of one's clothes, the putting on of sackcloth and ashes as a sign that he has repented, that he is humbling himself before God. Now, God also says in this passage, but judgment's going to come in the next generation, doesn't he? Why is that? Why is judgment coming in the next generation? One answer to that is because his repentance and humility don't last. Read the next chapter. Read the very next chapter and you will find out that Ahab's repentance and humility lasted for a period of time, but it didn't last for his entire life. He went back on his repentance and humility. And his kids, his kids lived in sinfulness and wickedness as well. And so judgment is going to come. But in this moment, a moment in which Ahab humbles himself, a moment in which he repents, God says, I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to relent on my punishment that I was going to bring during this time. It's going to come. But what I want you guys to see here is how quick God is to show mercy. God knows, doesn't he, that his repentance isn't going to last throughout his entire life. God knows that his children are going to be wicked and sinful. And yet, what does God do in this situation? He doesn't say, well, I know his repentance isn't going to last, so I'm just going to bring the judgment anyway. God says, no, in this moment, he's expressing humility. In this, in this moment, he's broken before me, and I'm going to bring mercy in this situation. I'm going to relent on the judgment that I was going to bring. I don't know about you, but I experience a tremendous amount of hope when I read about that. Because if I'm honest, I can look at plenty of days in my life where I have been characterized more by the coveting and cowardice of Ahab than I have been characterized by the power and righteousness of Elijah. There are plenty of times I can look at in my life 
and say that day was far more an Ahab day than it was an Elijah day. Anyone else? And in the midst of that, looking at my own sin and my own brokenness, there is a tremendous amount of hope when I see God extend mercy to a man who has been declared the most sinful king in Israel's history up to this point. Even as he brings temporary repentance, God says, then I'm going to act in mercy because I love repentance and humility so much. I'm going to relent on my punishment and bring mercy instead. Isn't that encouraging? To those of us who look at our lives and say, boy, I see way too many Ahab moments in my life and way too few Elijah moments. As we come here today, it doesn't matter how wicked you have been in your past. It doesn't matter how many hidden sins you have that nobody else knows about or, or how badly you have ignored God as the pursuit of your life in order to pursue things that aren't God. God says, if today you will humble yourself, if today you will repent and turn to me and be devoted to me, salvation can come to you. You can experience my mercy and my freedom from punishment. Peter communicates this same message in Acts chapter 3 to the people who killed Jesus. As he is talking to the Jews who chanted, crucify him, crucify him, Peter communicates to them that there is salvation and mercy available even to those who chanted for Jesus to be put on the cross if they will repent and humble themselves before the Lord. He says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Even to those of you who chanted for Jesus to be put to death, you can have the mercy and salvation of God today if you'll repent and humble yourself before him. What an encouragement that is to all of us who look at our lives and see too many days where we've been like King Ahab, where we have been sinful and broken. God's mercy will be extended to us if we will humble ourselves and repent. I'd invite you to bow your heads with me now and just take a moment to contemplate with God's Spirit what He's speaking to us today. Perhaps for you today, as you come here, you say, yes, I, I have been pursuing things that are not God. That is what my life has been about. I, I've been sinful and selfish, and I need to repent and change the orientation of my life. My life needs to be about you, Jesus. My, my life needs to bow down to you as king and declare you as king over my life. Would you do that now? Perhaps as you come here today, you recognize as a child of God the immense amount of mercy and grace that has been poured out on you. You look at your life and you see those Ahab-like days. You look at your life and you see the sin and the mess. 
And then you see God's amazing grace and mercy that has canceled that, that has wiped it out, that has erased it entirely and replaced it with the righteousness of Christ. Exalt his name. Give him all praise for what he has done in you.